Now we're going to turn to the Bible. Uh, if you're visiting with us, an especially warm welcome. My name is Pete, uh, pastor here at Destiny, and uh, you're our guests. And we're going to have a great time just digging into the Bible. When, when we read the Bible, when we let the Bible speak to us, it has this uncanny way of just speaking right into our lives and our circumstances, just as where we're at. So certainly what I'm going to be sharing with you has been impacting me, and I pray it will impact you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You're among us, and you love everyone in this room in, in, in a profound and a deep way. I pray, God, as we turn to the Bible, that you'd speak to us. God, speak right into people's lives. For those who are listening to the MP3, speak to them. Impact us today, I pray. Pray for anyone who's far from you today, God. Bring them really close. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been around for a while in the church, you may have heard me share what I'm about to share with you before. Um, Because what I'm going to share with you actually so profoundly impacted me when I was in my late teens. It's it's around the time of my mum's passing away, 1996. I was 19 years old. And the events around them, I mean, that was just two years before I came and started the church in Edinburgh when I was 21. But those events around that, that moment impacted me so profoundly. And as I was preparing the message today, I was reminded in so many ways of the events around my mum's death. So let me just very quickly share it with you. 1996, mum's a, a follower of Jesus, and she'd been diagnosed years before with a terminal disease. Told she had months, but by God's grace, she lived for years. Lived a life of faith, missed one day as a teacher, missed one Sunday at church, and that was the Sunday she passed away. And having lived a miraculous existence for several years, in the last week of her life, she deteriorated ra- rather rapidly and wasn't able to walk. And in that last week, as I was reading the Bible, God gave me a verse for it. It was in First Kings. It's this little phrase where a woman was going through a really hard time. And instead of panicking, she made this phrase. She made this statement, it will be well. It was in First Kings. It's, the, it's this woman who's going through a crisis. And she repeated it. A couple of people said, are you okay? And she said, it will be well. And that phrase just jumped out of the Bible to me in that last week of my mom's life. And I shared it with her. Mom, I really believe God is saying, it will be well. And it didn't look well. But I felt that was what God was saying. Anyway, on the, on the Thursday night, she died on the Sunday night, but on the Thursday night before she died, uh, she, she was unable to walk. And so she, she, we left her sitting in a comfortable armchair with her feet up as the fire was flickering and she was just going off. To, we were going to go upstairs and sleep. She was just going to rest downstairs for the night. And uh, we, we left her, and I went upstairs. Next morning, I came down expecting to see mum there, because by this point, she couldn't walk. But she wasn't there. In fact, all her, all her duvet and everything, all her blankets were folded neatly on her seat. I thought, where's mum? And I went upstairs and looked in mum and dad's room, and she jumped back into bed. And mum said, in the, and she couldn't, she couldn't jump back into bed, right? And so she said, she woke up at that point and said, Peter, Peter, last night I was beside the fire, and Jesus, he appeared. And Jesus, he, he said, he, and she couldn't tell me. She tried to tell me. She said, Peter, he said, he, and every time she tried to tell me what he said, she couldn't say. It was almost, if, and if you're reading, reading scripture, you often see when people have visions of heaven, they're forbidden from talking about what they saw. And so it, it felt like that. And then she kind of became strangely distant. It's almost like from that point forward, she started transitioning. And she became less and less with us and more and more with God. It was a deep joy from that point. There was a deep joy. She kept thanking God and praising God. On the Sunday evening, um, she was in hospital. And Andrew and Sue, Andrew's my mentor. Andrew and Sue came in 
and uh, sat with her, one on each side of the bed, and sat reading her the Psalms. And Sue was reading her a Psalm. And let me just read the Psalm to you. It's Psalm 144, verse 12. And she, she read lots of Psalms. But when she got to this Psalm, she read this verse. And then after reading this verse, Mum breathed her last. And the verse was, Let our sons in their youth be as grown-up plants, and our daughters be as corner pillars, fashioned as, a, as for a palace. And, I, and it was almost like a prophetic verse to my mum as she was passing from this life into the next that about me being her son that in, in my young age I was going to have carry influence and that her daughter my sister Laura would have a role to play in the purposes of God and we're still praying for that one and she breathed the last having heard that verse and that was my mum's passing you know in the days that followed she, she had her funeral on the Wednesday and then on Thursday morning I had a phone call from a friend Tim Tim now leads Destiny Church in Newcastle. Tim phoned me and said, Peter, last night I had a dream. In the dream, I saw your mum. And your mum told me to tell you that all is well. If you remember, that's the word. God gave me that verse. It will be well. And I kept repeating it to her in the last week of her life. And that was between me, mum, and God. Mum told me to tell you that all is well. So lots of random thoughts. Two years later, I came to start the church here in Edinburgh. But the big questions are, and the verses tackle these questions, is there hope in the middle of crisis? Is there life beyond this life? Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start reading verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David's. What he opens... No one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you uh, an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, and you have kept my yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews and are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge. I have loved you. So obviously this, this church in Philadelphia, this, this town in modern day Turkey, was undergoing intense persecution from some people who claimed to be Jews, but they weren't interested in God at all. Okay? And this is one of the pressures they were facing. And so he went on, verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come in the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one may take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. And I will write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. All right, just let me unpack as best I can what what I'm seeing in these verses and what I think is going to help you. So first of all, what are Jesus' credentials? He kind of starts the verses by telling you his credentials. He says in verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true. So the one who's speaking just now is holy and true. In fact, in the Amplified Translation, is isn't just holy and true, it's the, the holy one, which, it, which pulls out a bit more of what the original language is saying. He's, he's referring to himself as the holy one. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that's a direct reference to him being God. In fact, Isaiah in the Old Testament, one of his favorite titles for God is Holy One. So Jesus there is claiming a divine name. He's, he's not, Jesus is not just a man. He's saying 
He's the Holy One. He's God Himself. Isn't that remarkable? And you do see in the verse, you also see He's distinct from God, i.e., the Son is distinct from the Father, because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're distinct persons, and yet, one God who happens to exist eternally as three distinct persons. Now I get, that's bamboozling, but it's there. And just, you've got to say, amen, just accept it. It's, it's Jesus reveals himself as the Holy One. In fact, all the way through Revelation, you see himself revealing himself in ways that are only attributed to God himself. Let me give you examples. In Revelation 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. That's how Jesus refers to it, the Alpha and the Omega. However, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, this is what it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. So let me, let me just make this really clear for you folks. Jesus is none other than God, the Almighty, the one who walked this earth with flip-flops, mucking around with a bunch of 12 motley crew disciples, healing sick people, teaching great people, teaching light, teaching, and then eventually hung on a cross, resurrected on the third day. He's the Almighty. He's the one who made you. He actually knows you better than you know yourself. This Jesus from 2,000 years ago who walked the earth, he's God. Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus is God. So the one who's, who's telling you these things you're about to hear is Jesus, who is God. The astronaut James Irving, who was the eighth person to walk on the surface of the moon, when he returned from walking on the moon, he gave an interview, and in the interview he said this. He said, the most significant achievement of our age is not that man stood upon the moon, but rather that God in Christ stood on this earth. The Almighty was born as a baby. The Creator was made to look like His creation. He who made men was made to be man. It's great news. God became a man. Verse, verse 7, it says, He holds the key of David. So he's still talking about his credentials. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. He's, taught, he's saying that I'm the holy one, I'm the true one. What I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can open. Now, this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. And actually in the book of Revelation, 400 times, uh, the book of Revelation quotes from the Old Testament. 400 times. And here's one of the quotes from the Old Testament. In Isaiah 22, verse 22, it says, I will place in his shoulder the key of the house of David, that no one who... Sh-, so he open, when he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. It was actually a prophecy. Uh, God was speaking to the steward who looked after Jerusalem. He was, he was very, a very high position in Jerusalem, and he was given this key, literally, so he, could, so he could say who came and went in Jerusalem. And that's what that verse is referring to. So when Jesus is saying, I'm the one with the key... I open and no one shuts and I close and no one opens. He's saying, I'm the one who says what, I'm the one who says what goes. I'm the one who says what goes in your life. I'm the one who says what goes in a church. I'm the one who says what goes in cities. I change things. I close doors. No one can open them. I open them. No one can close it. No one can stop me. I'm interfering. I'm in, 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 intervening. I'm doing things. I'm opening and closing doors. That's what Jesus is saying. And let, let me just share with you four doors I'm seeing in these verses that God opens for us. Now, just to be really clear, it's pretty abstract. I mean, you got that when you're reading the verses. God says, church at Philadelphia, I'm opening for you a door. And we're kind of left thinking, well, what door were you opening for them, Lord? 
And he doesn't tell us. Now, here's my guess. If you were in the church of Philadelphia, you would think, we know exactly where that is. All right? Jesus deliberately didn't put it in the verses because if he did, we would then lock, lock in that principle that Jesus opened doors. We would lock it into being that only. You get it? He didn't tell us the context. They would have known the context. But the principle is this. In every generation, in every life, God's the God who opens doors. God's the God who opens doors for you. His four doors, I'm, I'm just going to pick up the clues. Well, what could these doors possibly be? And there's clues right through Scripture in, the, in these verses. There's four doors. First one is door of influence. See, in, in the Bible, you see different times when the idea of an open door is referred to. For example, Isaiah 45. God opens the door for a, a, a Persian king called Cyrus. And he says, I'm going to give you success militarily. You're going to take ground. I'm going to give you an open door. That's what God says in Isaiah. So in that context, the open door means military success. In, in the Apostle Paul's writings in Corinthians, on two occasions, Paul talks about how God's going to open a door for him for the gospel, influence of the gospel. So he's talking about influencing with a message, getting the message out, spread, taking ground for the kingdom of God. So when he's talking about open door, he's talking about influence, success, and advance. Now let me just give you some context for this place called Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia itself was actually a mission station. And I don't mean that in a kind of Christian sense. It was a mission station for the Greek culture. The, the, the city of Philadelphia was there to spread Greek language and Greek culture into the entire region of Asia Minor. That was the secular, that was the reason for that city's existence. Nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Christianity. That's just why they were there as a city. And it's interesting, so basically the city was like a doorway into a region. So it's interesting, into that city, God says to the church in that city, I'm going to open a door for you. So therefore, I think he was talking about how you church in that city, in a city that's there to influence a region, you church in that city are there, and you're going to influence a region. I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, to, and this is what he says in verse 8, I've now placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have very little strength. So the point is, you church, you church that have little strength, you're going to have big impact. And how many people are glad that some people with little strength can make a big impact? This church has little strength, but make a big impact. Why little strength? Man, well, this church had been pummeled, okay? And to be honest, the city had been pummeled as well. AD 17, there was a devastating earthquake in the city of Philadelphia. And for 20 years following, they had tremors. The city was absolutely devastated in the earthquake. And then for 20 years, they had tremors. And basically crumbling buildings constantly. People having to run out of the city, then run back in again, th thinking it's going to collapse on them. It was a very insecure... The city was being pummeled by earthquakes. So, and, and so hence you see all the, the architectural language that God uses. Doors, temple, pillars. And, and they were constantly rebuilding their city. But so also the church in that city was being pummeled. And we got a little bit of an allusion to it when he talked about the, the people who claimed to be Jews. They were persecuting these Christians. And they, the Christians were being pummeled. They were, and yet, so they didn't have much strength. They didn't feel like they were on top of the world. They felt like they were, they were down and they were being kicked while they were down. But God was saying to this church, a church that was being pummeled through persecution, he's saying, do you know what? You, you feel like you've got little strength, but you're going to carry a big punch. You've got big influence. And he says, to the one who is victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, I'm going to make you solid. I'm going to make you stand. I know you feel weak, 
but I'm going to make you solid. I'm going to make you established. Uh, they, they didn't, you know, some of you don't feel like a pillar. Some of you feel like a pillock, okay? Uh, you, you, you don't feel that solid, right? You, you feel a bit weak. You feel a bit vulnerable. You feel like you're, you're getting knocked and you feel like life has knocked you. You feel like as a follower of Jesus, you don't feel like you're firing on all cylinders. Uh, but, but hey, do you know what? But, verse 8, you've kept my word and not denied my name. You haven't quit on Jesus, folks. Verse 10, you've kept my command and endure patiently. Verse 11, you hold on to what you have. You've not quit on Jesus and Jesus hasn't quit on you. So sure, you don't feel totally strong and on top of the world. But you haven't quit on God and God's not quit on you. And you've been holding on. You've been hanging in there. That's so strong. God's going to make you a pillar. Pillocks. There was a pilot called Henry Dempsey, and, a, and he was flying his little his small passenger plane, and he was flying with his co-pilot. And in the middle of the flight, he became aware of a noise out the back. So he gave the controls to his co-pilot, and he went back to see what the noise was. And as he was going down to where the luggage was, um, the, the, the plane hit an air pocket, and it suddenly it shuddered. It had some turbulence, and he was thrown to the side wall, and then he suddenly discovered what the noise was. He was thrown against the door, and the door wasn't securely locked, right? So the door flung open, and, uh, and he, he was sucked out of the plane. So the co-pilot sees the red light coming on in the, in the cockpit. So he immediately messages ahead to the closest airport for, and asks for an emergency landing and asks for a helicopter to be sent to search the sea where they've just been flying over to see if they can recover the pilot. Anyway, they, they, they land the plane and discover that Henry Dempsey was clinging on to the ladder that came out of the door, clinging on, and landed. He, he survived. He landed. Going 200 miles an hour, 4,000 4, feet up, and he survived the landing. His head was 12 inches from the ground as they landed, managed to keep his head up. And it apparently took 10 minutes for the ground crew to prise his fingers from the ladder. <laughs> hanging on. Just hanging on. He's not going to let go of Jesus. Don't care what comes at me. It's going to hang on to you. Don't care how many doubts come through my head. I'm not going to quit on Jesus. I might quit on other stuff, but I'm not quitting on Jesus. I'm not going to walk out on him. He's not going to walk out. He's not going to quit on me, so I'm not going to quit on him. You're hanging on. So I, I get sometimes you don't feel like you've got much strength, but you're here today. Still worshiping God, right? Still following Jesus. You're stronger than you think. God says, weak people, you're going to have big influence. We had a few weeks ago Bill Wilson with us. Who, who, who heard Bill Wilson? Right, pretty powerful night, right? Amazing. Bill Wilson, every week, in fact, he was telling me that that Sunday, they had 205,000 kids in their five Sunday school locations around the world. 205,000 kids. That's a pretty big Sunday school, all right? We, we, we have a lot of kids. We're, we're, not, we're not there yet in our kids' church, but he has a bit more than us, 205,000 kids. But you know, his story began when, as a, as a kid, his mum in New York City, in a rough area of New York, his mum uh, basically abandoned him. She took him to a street corner and says, uh, Bill, wait there. And he waited. He waited three days, no food. His mum never came back. Sat there three days. His mum totally abandoned him. And eventually, a Christian guy called Dave, he'd seen him a couple of times. He'd passed him a couple of times. He wondered about the kid. And he saw him there on the third day and thought, I'm going to do something. Now, the thing is, the Christian guy called Dave was struggling with financial debt, and his son was battling a terminal disease. So it wasn't like he was firing on all cylinders. But he decided 
even though he himself didn't feel like he was firing on all cylinders, he was going to extend love and influence to this guy called Bill, this little boy called Bill. And lo and behold, Bill goes on to lead the biggest Sunday school in the world. Sure, you have a little strength. You don't feel like you're firing on all cylinders. But God can use you to make a big influence. And God's not just it could, he, he's going to, you with little influence, God's using with little strength, going to have big influence. Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China, was asked one day, his friend commented about the huge impact that the China Inland Mission was making, the, the mission that Hudson Taylor had started. And this is what Hudson Taylor said. It seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. And when at last he found me, he said, he's weak enough, he'll do. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things because God's, because they reckoned on him being with them. So it's actually not about you feeling like, I'm the man, I've got it all together, I've sorted my life out, now I'll do something. No, no. Even while you don't feel complete, even while you don't feel sufficient for the task, God's saying, step out. Big influence for people who have little strength. There was a little girl one day playing a piano, and she, she wasn't playing very eloquently, she was just two fingers. And then a great grand master pianist came and sat down on the bench beside her and started basically filling in the gaps where she was missing. And that's what it's like with God. God says in Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You just fire out those two-fingered notes and God will come along and fill in the difference. Just get moving. And so when I came to Destiny Edinburgh, when I, start, well, when I came to start this church when I was 21 years old, I just, you know, I wasn't feeling like I was firing on all cylinders. I just lost my mum shortly before that. Uh, I was insecure, still am, didn't feel like I knew what I was doing, just pretended I did. I made it up as I went along. I never had, I trained as, a, as an architect, I hadn't trained as a church planner, wasn't ready for the challenges I faced, wasn't ready for the disappointments, wasn't ready for the discouragements. Me and Angie just got married. We were not the bee's knees, but we did it anyway. And to be honest, <laughs> you probably think I'm kidding. I'm always nervous. I'm, I worry about a lot. I don't feel like I'm the bee's knees. Hey, we've, we've done some stuff, I get it. But I, I still don't feel like I'm Superman. No way. Man, you have no idea. I feel insecure. I feel weak. I feel vulnerable so often. But I pray a lot. And I do what he tells me. And I've got a good team. And all I'm saying is this. Don't let your weakness be an excuse for you not stepping out. What excuse have you come up with for why you're not going to do things for God these days? God didn't give you those ideas. God wants to do great things through you. Yeah, you're a little strength, but he wants to give you big influence, you with little strength. I remember when we started the church, we got a prophecy. One of the prophecies was God says, you are planting a, a church in a significant city. And God wants you to have a significant church in a significant city that reaches the world. And so by God's grace, we've started four locations. Next year, we'll be up to six locations if you include online and city. By 2020, God willing, we'll be seven locations. Well, many of you don't also know is we've also started six churches. 
We started churches into various parts of the world, Inverness, uh, Dunfermline, Fife, Poland, Hong Kong, Nigeria. We started churches. But you know what my dream is, honestly? Us with little strength. I believe God wants us to have an even bigger influence in the days ahead than we've ever dreamt of. You know, honestly, I'm, let me just throw this out there. I think we could see 100 churches planted from us, from little old us. I think God could use us to plant 100 churches around the world. Churches that then go on to plant churches. Wouldn't it be great by the time we're done we've got 1,000 grandkid churches? Hey, it's totally possible. Completely possible. Not, not because we're so great, because they just happen to believe in a God who is awesome. And he can do great things through ordinary people like us. So first of all, door of influence. Secondly, door of opportunity. And you know, the reason I'm saying this, I'm not seeing this in the verses here, but I'm seeing this elsewhere in the Bible. When, when, when God speaks of an open door, he's often speaking of opportunity. For example, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. And here Jesus says, verse 7, what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. It's like that song by Don Mio. Don Mio. God can make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. God will make a way for me. We'll stop there. God can make a way where there seems to be no way. All right, so he's saying that what he opens, no one can shut. And I believe that. And what God shuts, doesn't matter how hard you try, you can't open it. I believe in that. So I moved to Edinburgh, and I needed a job. And it was at a time in the, it was the late 1990s, there was hundreds of applications for every job that was available in any architect's office. So I was up against high competition. So I just found, I didn't know anything about Edinburgh, I just found out who are the six best firms. And one afternoon I just, I, I got, had my suit on, I had my portfolio, and I just turned up in the door. I knew the name of the managing director of this firm called Reichen Hall Architects. And I just turned up and asked, can I speak to Tom Bostock, the manager, please? And the receptionist said, yeah, what's your name? I said, my name is Peter Anderson. Now listen, I'd already applied to Reichen Hall, and they'd said, oh yeah, we'll keep you on file. When a job comes around, we'll maybe look at it. You know, that's, that's the standard reply they give to the hundreds and hundreds of students who want to get, because Reichen Hall, top class firm, top class firm. So I, I asked to speak to the managing director. The, the lady asked, what's your name? I said, my name's Peter Anderson. She, she said, Tom, Peter Anderson's here to see you. Now, I didn't know this, but Peter Anderson's the name of a famous lawyer in Edinburgh <laughs> who happens to advise the RIAS, the Royal Institute of Architects in Scotland. Right? Woo! I just happen to have the right name, I'm telling you. You can't make this up. I, 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 so he thought, why is Peter Anderson coming to see me? So he kind of strains up his tie, comes through, and he's looking around. Sorry, who are you? And I said, I'm Peter Anderson. Uh, okay, right. So he said, okay, I'll give you 10 minutes. 10 minutes became an hour, and I got a job. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> God can make a way where there seems to be no way. When God opens a door, no man can shut it. I was there for five years. The, the year I left, my design director got Designer of the Year Award. They were, a, they, looking back retrospectively, they're the best design firm in Scotland. And I didn't know it. But God got me in there 
Just because somehow or another, 21 years before that, mum said, I've got to call him Peter. Why is that? She thought it was all spiritual. It wasn't. It's just because there's a lawyer in Edinburgh called Peter. <laughs> God can make a way. I don't, hey, you can't, you, can't, you can't fake that. You can't make, you, you, God will do it for you though. And I don't know how he'll do it for you. I have no idea how he'll do it for you. But I'll, I just, I've just got this conviction that God's completely able to do for you what he's done for me. Exactly the same type of miracles. He'll do. You'll have your own stories. Yours will be even more dramatic. He will do things that you've never even imagined. He has ways of opening doors you couldn't even imagine. You can manipulate these things. God will do it for you. God can give opportunities. And you know, God opens doors that humans have closed. You know, someone may say, no, but God says, no, actually, I want you to go through that door. So by the way, I don't just go for the open door opportunity. I don't just go for all the opportunities that are out there. Oh, there's an opportunity. I'll jump in there. Oh, they're offering me a job over there. That's, that must be the Lord's leading. I jump. No, no, don't be circumstance led. Be led by God. And sometimes when God leads you, for example, God might lead you to stay in the city, even though there's an opportunity in London. Oh, but God, there's no opportunities here. I'm telling you, if God, if God is saying stay in the city, he'll open a door that men have closed. He can make it possible. I remember my friend Brendan, he, had been, he wanted to become a teacher. He finished art college. He didn't get the grades he wanted, and he wasn't accepted into teacher training college. But he, he knew that God had told him to do teacher training. So on day one of teacher training, he got up, he shaved, got ready, got his bag ready, and turned up at teacher training college. And the head of the department said, sorry, why are you here? He said, well, I'm meant, I'm meant to be on this course. He said, well, he didn't get in, mate. He didn't get in. There's, there's no place. And anyway, he did this day in, day out for about a week and a half. Just turned up nine o'clock for class. And eventually the head of the department says, you know what? We're going to create a place for you. <laughs> Became a teacher. God can make a way where there seems to be no way. So it doesn't, doesn't, actually it doesn't matter what people say. All that matters is you follow the leading of God. And God has this uncanny way of opening doors. Third door he opens is, and hey, he, he, he can do that for you with your visa. He can do that for you with a relationship. He can do that for you with a job. He can do that for you with a small group. It seems like, is this ever going to launch? It will. He can do that with a church plant. There's so many ways God can open doors that no one can shut. Thirdly, a door of revelation. My friend, I remember my friend Ishmael. He, he used to be a very devout Muslim and uh, from Iran. A very radical Muslim. And he, he told me the story of just before he became a follower of Jesus. He was actually planning an attack on a church with, three, with two other friends. It was three of them, three Muslims. And he, in his pursuit of God, he believed, in his pursuit of God's peace, he believed that he had to apply some of the verses that talked about doing violence to people who were Christian. And so, and so he, 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 was out, he and his friends had planned an attack with machetes on a church in Cyprus. In the days leading up to that attack, he was praying and asking God for help with that. And then God spoke to him. He'd never heard God speak before. And this is what God said, and I'm going to quote this. I've already quoted it to you. God said, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. That, he, he heard those words in a prayer time before attacking a church. 
The next day he's praying again, and he, again he is God speaking to him. After several days of praying, he realizes that the one who's speaking to him is none other than Jesus. He renounces his plan. He becomes a follower of Jesus. It was months later as a follower. In fact, he got in trouble. He ended up being arrested and put in prison in Iran for having a Bible. Okay, But it was months later as he was reading the Bible, he saw the exact thing that Jesus had said to him as he was praying. They literally the exact words in Revelation chapter 3. Isn't that amazing? When we're talking about a door, I believe it's talking about a door of revelation. Jesus wants to reveal himself to you when you're in a tough time. This church was in a tough time. This church, you know, when you're in a tough time, you look for escapism. Well, you can escape in God. You don't need to escape into a substance or into an uh, experience just to get your mind off the pain. You can turn to God. You can find God to be your escape in the midst of it. And this church could find Jesus in the midst of the challenge. Revelation chapter 4, John the Apostle, who was writing the book of Revelation, was on the island of Patmos as a prisoner on an island. And this is what it says, verse 1, Revelation 4, verse 1, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what will take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood open in heaven, stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. He gets a vision of God. And so John, in a place of a really hard place on the island of Patmos as a prisoner, felt restricted. You imagine being an apostle. Your remit's to go and make disciples and plant churches, and now you're all restricted in one place. And he has this vision of God. He has the ultimate escape in the midst of the hard time. And the vision of God gave him a different perspective. But notice, John's influence from the place of being restricted was greater than it ever had been before he was restricted. John's greatest influence came from the island of Patmos. He wrote the book of Revelation. He went on to write the gospel of John and the epistles of John from this situation. You need to understand that, folks, the greatest influence you get won't come because you're so clever. It will come because you have a vision of God's revelation of who God is. The best steps we've taken as a church came directly as a result of us getting a revelation from God. Buying this, you're in this building, this building, the very building we're in, this building wouldn't even be our building if it were not from God speaking in a time of prayer. You're literally, the seat you're on, the floor you're standing on, this building came as an answer to prayer. It materialized, it came into our belonging because of a revelation from God. Sometimes the biggest answer you can get is a vision of God. And then from that vision of God comes the influence that you will make, even if you're in a restricted, hard time. And then the fourth door is a door of heaven. And, and again, this is what my mum saw. My mum had this glimpse into another reality. And it is a reality. This is what it says in verses 12 and 13. He goes on and says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on the, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I, I will also write on them my new name. Whoever is he is, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hey, I don't know what all that's talking about. But let me do my best to give you some of the things it's talking about. Karl Marx 
very anti-religion, anti-God, anti-Christian philosopher. Karl Marx said that religion is the opium of the masses. What he meant by that is this, that it's, you know, it's like a carrot that religion hangs in front of people. Oh, you can go to heaven. And it kind of it helps them get through the challenges of life. Basically, it's an escapism. It's not facing reality. It was a criticism he used against religious people who just don't face up to the realities of life. Oh, you're just trying to escape and by thinking about heaven. So heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. C.S. Lewis disagreed with him. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, it is those who have thought most about the next world who have done most in this one. And I believe that. See, I believe that there is a door to heaven. It, one day we'll go through that door. But just knowing it's there should actually motivate you on earth like nothing else. In 2009, the BBC did an article and they, based on a survey of, of the UK population and they discovered in the UK, 55% of people in the UK would say they believe in heaven. 70% believe in the existence of the human soul. It's one of the biggest questions. I mean, life is really short. And you're going to spend more time that side of eternity than this side. See, you better figure it out. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, just maybe some of, some of you know this, just in the last few weeks, he's passed away. And let me read you a statement from his family describing his last moments. They said, During the previous days, it was apparent that he was navigating the thin and sacred space between heaven and earth. They stated, We overheard him speaking to people, which we can only presume were welcoming him into paradise. And there was even a time or two when he he accessed his Pentecostal roots and spoken tongues as well. And it's often the case, just like with Eugene Peterson and with my mum, that as people are passing from this life into the next, it is very, very common. You may, I'm almost certain if I went around to the microphone, you'd have stories. It's very, very common for people to start getting glimpses into the next world. And for those who are lost, that's dreadful. There's often great terror and fear, seeing the lostness and deadness that they're heading to, an eternal deadness. For those who are saved there is often great joy, even in the midst of the terriblest time, a great peace and a joy as they, as they see into the next realm. That's what my mom saw. My mom had visions of Jesus. Eugene Peterson started seeing things that were coming. This is not mumbo-jumbo, folk. this is total reality. And this is, the question is, what is heaven like? And this is what, this is what, this is what it says in Revelation. It says, he says, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down, say coming down, out of heaven from my God. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Well, what's that? All right, let me just take you to a verse that describes heaven. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, this is pretty good around here, right? Lovely trees, beautiful ocean, lovely mountains. But this is a world tainted by sin. You ought to see what's coming. You ought to see what's coming. It's coming to a new earth and a new heaven. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, say coming down, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
the dwelling of place, God's dwelling place, is now among people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. And he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Say hallelujah. Oh man. For the old things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. That's heaven. So there is a present heaven and there is a future heaven. Obviously, I'm unpacking a whole load more verses than we're talking about just now. There is a present heaven. When people die, you will instantly be in the presence of God. A present heaven. But it's a disembodied state. You won't have a physical body. Until the resurrection. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible promises, so also his followers will be given resurrected bodies. People who have died in the Lord's, Winnie, who was part of this congregation, is in heaven just now. And when you see Winnie eventually at the resurrection, Winnie will look like Winnie, a younger version, fit and strong and healthy. But Winnie is very, very much alive just now. Heaven is an absolute reality. But there's a future heaven. And the future heaven happens after the resurrection. Typically, when people think of heaven, they think of some ghostly, disembodied state, kind of floating around like ghosts. And we're not that enamored by it, to be honest. We don't want to admit that, but we're not that excited about it. We think, okay, I know I should be excited. Oh, praise the Lord, heaven. But we kind of like it here. We kind of like emotions and playing football and climbing mountains and going swimming and, and seeing beauty. And you know, we like those things and we kind of are not that excited about floating around in a cloud in a nappy playing a harp, right? It just doesn't do it for us. But what we've done is we've based our theology on Victorian paintings more than we have on what the Bible actually says. Because what the Bible actually says is the future heaven, the ultimate heaven, there is a temporal heaven until the resurrection. But at that point, the Bible teaches that there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he said, look, here's my hands and my feet. Touch me and see. Because a ghost doesn't have flesh and blood, as you see I have. Jesus is described as the first fruits of what is coming. In other words, he's the model of what we will experience. We will have resurrected, physical, resurrected. You can eat food. Jesus ate fish in his resurrected state. You can eat fish. Okay? You can eat foods. You, you're going to have experiences. It's a physical place. The ultimate heaven will be heaven on earth. God created earth for humankind. So why do you think for eternity you're going to spend heaven, uh, spend eternity floating in the sky? No, no. He created you for earth. It just happens to be this is a cursed earth and we're a fallen race. So he saved us spiritual. We'll have a new physical body and he'll recreate the earth and the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The domain of mankind has always been earth. Typically we think of heaven as us leaving our place to go and be with God in his place. But the Bible reveals that the ultimate heaven Will God be leaving his place and coming to dwell among us in our place? Say, come down. All the verses we read talked about the new Jerusalem that was coming down from heaven. And the declaration in Revelation is, the dwelling of God is among us. God's going to be among us. And in Revelation 21 and 22, you see allusions to us eating, drinking, learning, worshiping, working, traveling, experiencing many things you do now. There's references to nations. 
which suggests there will be civilizations and cultures and different ethnicities, different ethnic traits, all this will be reinstated. We will be in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, serving a resurrected God in a resurrected city, the New Jerusalem. That's heaven. And that's very exciting. So see when you're all worried, man, I don't, I'm, I'm young, I want to travel a bit and see the world before I really settle into that. Listen, you're going to have all eternity to see the world. Get on with life. Get on with pursuing the purpose of God. Seriously, I'm absolutely serious. Stop your nonsense. Just get on with pursuing the purposes of God. You can have all eternity to actually to enjoy a resurrected earth in all its glory. There's an ultimate door, folks. The ultimate door into that place is Jesus Christ. There's a very small metal door built into a wall on a tiny mission church on the edge of Johannesburg, South Africa. And it's written on the door, is, is this, it says, the door of hope. For years in that community, babies were abandoned in the streets and they often died of exposure or starvation. But this church, this little mission sta- station, built on the side of the wall a door of hope where mums could anonymously come and instead of abandoning their babies, could place the baby into the door of hope and close the door. And then the church, which had an orphanage and did everything it could to help people find homes, would then make sure those children found families. The door of hope. And since putting that door of hope in, hundreds of babies' lives have been saved. There is a door of hope. He's called Jesus Christ who is God. God died for you. He took away your sin that would have damned you to hell. And he offers you heaven. That's what the cross was all about. He took your punishment. So you don't have to have hell. By believing in Jesus, you can have heaven. More importantly, by believing in Jesus, you can have God. You can know God, the source of all life. Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 10, I am the gate Whoever enters through me will be saved. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can have heaven. You can have Jesus. You can have a relationship with the true God. So that you with little strength, God wants you to bring big influence and we find life through Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. You've spoken through the verses. You've spoken through the verses. Thank you, God, you speak to us, and you spoke, as you spoke 2,000 years ago to that church in Philadelphia, today you speak to us here in Leith, and you tell us that you're going to create openings for us that no one can shut. Doors of influence are going to open for us. Doors of opportunity are going to open. Doors, uh, do- doors of, that bring us into the ultimate heaven and a revelation of God. And God, I just believe that's your plan. I just declare that over this congregation. That's what you're going to do. If you're here today and you're, and you're saying, Pete, I, I, need, I need God to open a door for me. I need God to open a door, whether it be circumstantially, you're facing circumstance, you feel your back's against the wall, you don't feel you have the answers. 
and you're needing God to open a door for you. It's a door of opportunity, a door, a job, a, a visa situation, a relationship situation needs to change. If that's you and you need a door to open for you, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you just now. Go for it. Just raise your hand while everyone's praying. Raise your hand. Say, that's me. I need a door to open for me. Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. There's hands up all over this place. Lord, I pray for doors to open, God. Doors of provision. Doors of jobs. Doors of situations that have been deadlocked. Open them now in Jesus' name. Open those locks in Jesus' name. Unlock uh, situations that have been locked up for years in Jesus' name. Open doors for these people, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Thanks, you can put your hands down. Lord, I pray for doors of influence to open up. God, I pray for influence in these communities, influence in this city. God, we lift to you our dream. We want to see 100 churches started. Would you give us that influence? We're, we're weak. We're not a strong, massive, awesome church. We're just a church. But we're daring to believe that you, strong, massive, awesome gods, could start 100 churches through us. So God, do that, we pray. In Jesus' name.